Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Brienne Foz, who is the editor of Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. Brienne, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. So you have this edited collection of... How many? A hundred manifest over a hundred? About seventy-five. Yeah, close to a hundred. I was like, "This is great." Of manifestos. Can you start by talking a little bit about why this collection? Why you put together this collection, and what you thought was important about this collection at this time? Well, I first started coming across lots of manifestos when I was working on a biography of Valerie Solanas. And for those who might not be familiar with her, she was, you know, a pretty notorious figure who shot Andy Warhol and wrote a very famous manifesto called the Scum Manifesto. And once I came across that manifesto and I was doing lots of archival work about the 1970s and 1970s radical feminism in particular, I came across a lot of really interesting, compelling manifestos. And then I just started collecting them over years and years and years. And it became really clear to me that most people's understanding of the manifesto as a genre was really thinking about it in relation to, you know, the big classic manifestos like the communist manifesto, or maybe some manifestos coming out of the art world, but that there had never really been a collection of thinking about manifestos from a feminist perspective, or more specifically thinking about the feminist manifesto as its own kind of subgenre. And it really seemed like a very important, thing to sort of fill a gap through. I mean, I really wanted to see this collection, you know, come to life because it was a book that I wanted to have. It's a book that I wished that I had. Um, And I really do feel like each of these sections in this book, there are specific bodies of work that we want to sort of think about in distinct ways and that feminist manifestos have different implications. So, you know, the history of the manifesto is really kind of an interesting one. But the thing I find most interesting about it is that it's a genre that really goes against lots of very traditional ways that women are taught to think and speak. So, you know, manifestos are very hot-tempered, highly emotional, um, you know, sort of usurping the kind of like universal we. Um, they really, you know, they they basically assume authority, even if one hasn't earned that authority in any way, which is so exciting about it, right? So the the writers are talking from this position of, utter authority about whatever subjects they want. It's very revolutionary and impolite and impatient. Um, And it's about, you know, it's really about that particular moment. So they're written kind of in a fury or maybe a manic state or something. Um, These are all things that I felt were really interesting as a genre for women to take up in particular, given that women are so often expected to speak and act in ways that are very, you know, providing deference to others, apologizing for themselves you know, like barely able to make space for their own voices without, you know, lots of caveats and emotional labor and that sort of thing. So, you know, the feminist manifesto is doing something that feels really refreshing, I think. And and when you go through this collection, I think you'll really feel that the impact of that, of, of a whole bunch of writers just taking on this genre as their own and, you know, creating these really quite amazing and I think, you know, profound at times um, revolutionary documents. So that's that's why I really wanted to write this book and, you know, collect these manifestos as much as possible to think of it as a body of work that we should take seriously. No, it made me actually really excited. I don't know if I'll ever teach this class again, but a couple of years ago, I taught a class on feminist rhetorics and I focused on the manifesto um, and used the riot girl and Valerie Solanas and all. And I'm like, I wish I had this whole collection then. <laughs> Um, so I was like, yes, there is a place for this. This is so needed. And it was really, um, I loved seeing what you included. And one of the things you talk about at the beginning, before we sort of get into the sections is that you didn't necessarily choose uh, some of these are more well-known, right. But uh, many of them are not. Um, and you made a choice to put in, manifestos that aren't really from people that everybody knows or that these sort of traditional quote unquote traditional manifestos. So can you talk just a little bit about that choice um, and the choice to as what you did include and why? Yeah, I mean, I really believe that it's exciting when we get to hear from writers who have never published work before or writers that no one has heard of, or writers that we aren't already familiar with in conversation with people that we do have more of a history with or more familiarity with, because 
it really shows that like these hierarchies we make about knowledge production can be upended in the context of edited collections and books in particular. And I really feel like my role in part was to do some of that work, right? To really, um, you know, embody this kind of idea that manifestos are writing from the gutter. They're writing from this other sort of perspective. They're, they're you know, documents of class-based rage a lot of the time. They really don't have a lot of interest in pedigree and credentialing and those sorts of things. And I think that that really comes through this collection where, you know, you hear from writers that, you know, have a very sort of like raw and intense sensibility, and they're very different than the kinds of writing that we're used to seeing with that's affiliated with feminism. And I think really that's another goal of this book is really to kind of present a version of feminism that's a bit different than the ones that we're used to seeing, you know, in popular culture, mainstream media, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that version is often in the mainstream media, I think, very, um, very liberal feminist oriented. You know, it's very like welcoming and inclusive. It's very like, um, I don't know, just just kind of a, a sort of friendly, smiling, happy face version of feminism. And this feminism in this collection is a lot more, I would say, full of edges and margins and especially jagged edges, you know, and I, I think that's important. And some of that sort of, you know, edginess or marginality that comes through in this text comes from the diversity of writers. I mean, you have people in here as well-known and sort of cerebral and scholarly as Donna Haraway. And then you have people who've never published anything before. And this is their, you know, who are 18 years old, like writing their first sort of missive. And I love that contradiction and that, and that sort of, um, you know, diversity of, of voice, because it really is what feminism is about. Um, and I think, you know, publishing in this way has been exciting that way. In the queer and trans section, you have a number of manifestos that are coming not necessarily from people who identify as female or identify um, as a specific gender. I think more so you have throughout, but more so than any of the other sections. So can you talk a little bit about sort of those, some of those queer trans manifestos and what you were trying to sort of get at with them? Yeah, I mean, I love this section in part because it's really a wonderful section to read all together. So it starts um, kind of in this early moment of, you you know, it starts with this incredible manifesto by Zoe Leonard. It's a one pager. It's really intense sort of gut punch of a manifesto, um, so, you know, critiquing the presidency. And then it moves into um, ACT UP, you know, and sort of early AIDS activism work, which I really love. Um, and then it kind of throughout the rest of this section, you know, takes up topics as diverse as the trans feminist manifesto, you know, thinking about male feminism, queer male feminism, and like connecting that with kind of a mainstream feminist movement. And of course, you know, the Dyke manifesto from the lesbian Avengers is in there, the radical lesbians, which is like re- these really wonderful early lesbian moments from 1970, 1992. Um, and I and I love that work because it's very defiant. It's very kind of pathbreaking, but it also is one of these you know series of like these early moments of defining the gay rights movement as well, and kind of the future directions of it. And so you can see all these seeds being planted in these. In particular, though, I think right now in this moment of contagion, the ACT UP manifesto just feels like it was suddenly again written for us right now. So it starts off, you know, sort of you know, with, with a call to really take seriously that the stakes of not doing activism to keep ourselves safe is death, right? And so, and really reminding us that contagions are so connected to political activism that, you know, we don't just get what we need in the moments of, you know, big public health crises by hoping that our leaders will do the right thing, right? That it takes this kind of intense grassroots activism to make that happen. And so the manifesto you know, maybe six months ago, I might not even have said that, right, that it felt like very prescient and, you know, very um, contemporary. But right now, that manifesto, again, feels like it's kind of resurged in my mind as like something that feels very fresh and contemporary. Um, so yeah, this this is a section that I think, you know, it's it won't just be of interest, of course, to people who are already thinking about the history of queer thought and queer theory and these things. It will also be a sort of call to, you know, to link up queer studies and the history of queer activism with this moment right now of contagion. So I think it's a kind of exciting uh, bridge that we can create with that too. Deb, you know, Deb, what you're saying that I was like, yes, yes. As I was um, reading the section and looking over these, they not only sort of were this, um, 
memory lane trip back to some of what you're talking about, the AIDS crisis and what was in the epidemic. But also, again, I was thinking that same kind of thing, like how telling is this? How how does it how much does it resonate with what is happening right now um, and what we're sort of seeing and, and how we're the language we're using and how we're talking about individuals and people um, right now. So I got that feeling, too, in that sort of section. Good. Yeah, I know. I. It's funny, you know, manifestos are, are not meant to be for all time, right? They're, they're of the moment. They're sort of, you know, one writer described it as, you know, throwing a brick through a window. Like it's supposed to sort of feel like that. But they do have a kind of process where they can kind of go dormant and then suddenly become relevant again. And I feel like that about so many of them in here, you know, even the next section where we're thinking about, you know, and the anti-capitalist anarchist section, there's all these things about like mundane domestic housework and anxieties about wages for housework and, um, you know, the failures of capitalism and how that connects to the feminist movement. And those just feel so fresh again too. So it's really, and, and so relevant to this exact moment where we're just seeing these cascades of failures colliding. And so I think, you know, that's a, it's a fun thing to revisit those manifestos in this moment too. No, that's so funny because I was just going to say in this section, that's exactly, um, so the, that second section is on that anti-capitalist and anarchist. And I was, I was just going to say, I'm, this was really interesting, like thinking back to especially that piece on the wages of housework and how that is um, coming out right now um, in our time of, uh, stay-at-home orders and what that means in relationships uh, where how people are sort of dividing the work and how we're sort of talking about that and who are essential workers. Uh, so this section uh, had some really, well, also had Emma Goldman, who is one of my all-time favorite people in the world ever. Um, but like we, you moved even in like these pieces from the early seventies and the mid seventies are really resonating still today, 40 years later. Right. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, this section really is also designed to think about all kinds of contemporary politics around labor and how they connect to the labor our sort of labor history. So, you know, again, not just housework, but also, you know, the abolition of currency or the abolition of borders, how we sort of think about, um, you know, wokeness and how that travels through contemporary media and pop culture. And then thinking about, you know, where do women get left when it comes to, you know, the, the sort of end goals of capitalism? And I feel like, you know, right now, this is such a manifesto moment, too. So I'm hoping that this section will will get some, you know, some new fresh energy that's like out there in the world with people writing manifestos, because I mean, you just see that all the time. Like yesterday, right. The New York times published this thing about how men think that they're like 45% of dads that are at home think they're doing the majority of homeschooling and like 2% of women agree with that. You know? So we, again, we, we don't just see that with regard to housework, but also just even like this kind of mass homeschooling movement that's happening by, you know, not by choice, but by force right now. And, who shoulders the majority of that labor. And so these, you know, these manifestos, I think, really help us to think about, you know, labor and capitalism and anarchy as this sort of fusion. It's a really important one, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, especially in this time. Um, so the next section you have, it's interesting, you uh, you have an angry, violent section, even though a lot of these manifestos are sort of angry and violent, not only in this section. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to highlight these in a separate section as opposed to, I mean, they all could probably fit into one of these other sections, but what is it about this group of work, and I know um, you have parts of Scum Manifesto in this section, so talking a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to really think, you know, the, the book is organized in a, in a bit of a strange way, so you're absolutely right, that we move in some ways from identities to affect, you know, back to identities, and then, like, it ends with this weird section of that I'm calling witchy-bitchy, which is sort of not exactly identity-based and not exactly emotional, but kind of both. Um, but it's really helping. I designed it to sort of think about bodies of work that I really wanted to be read together. And this one, I sort of want readers to enter this section thinking about this this sort of teetering edge of rage and then that sometimes veers into violence. And what do we do with that? Um, and the, the Scum Manifesto, of course, is kind of the epitome 
of that section. But also it's I feel like it serves, at least for me, as a kind of nucleus of the whole book in some ways. And even this section sort of does too, kind of this epicenter of the whole collection of thinking about, you know, women sort of claiming rage, claiming anger as their own. Um, and then what does it mean to sort of think about that not being directed towards each other per se, but really thinking about the collective strength and energy around anger. Um, and that's a really important distinction that I just want to highlight when we're talking about this section, because I think so much, especially of feminist histories and you know, so-called second wave feminist histories, radical feminist histories, ends up getting trapped in this thing where people really want to talk about disagreements between feminists and where are the fights that feminists have with each other and those sorts of things. And that's interesting and productive to a certain degree, but I think it's so much less interesting and so much less productive than really looking at this sort of like wide, broad view of what women's anger looks like in a collective sense. And so this section, I want readers to be able to enter and think about that, not in terms of what are like squabbles between different ways of seeing things, but what does it feel like to just read so many different versions back to back of this sort of angry and potentially violent sort of affect? Um, and I love that. It sort of, you know, it moves from a really old manifesto by Sojourner Truth into like, you know, classic 1970s red stockings. We get this weird early 20th century handwritten scribbly manifesto by Mina Loy. And then, of course, we have like the full length scum manifesto. Um, and, and actually, I want to also note that this was a version that she had published, self-published later on that she considered to be the most accurate version of the manifesto. And so I really am proud to have that included because it really it includes every single one of her modifications that she made over a 10 year span. And the one that Valerie Solanas herself was the most proud of. Um, you know, and then, of course, we get Andrea Dworkin's intercourse. We get this lovely black manifesto called Nope. Um, and it ends with a with a kind of, you know, artistic, angry, artistic folk poem, I guess we could call it by Ani DeFranco. So I hope that that section, I think when we move through it, we don't feel like we're dealing with disagreements as much as we're thinking about the power of anger collectively. So that I don't know if that'll actually succeed for readers to feel that way. But I find this section to be like medicine, you know, you kind of move through it and, and you feel you feel the strength of women's anger sort of building in that section. No, I'd love to see the Sojourner Truth, and I um, I appreciated your choice of picking uh, the text that not everyone is as familiar with, or or the one that we usually attribute to her, um, and then moving through and 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 seeing that sort of not necessarily side by side, but reading that in context with um, moving into that scum manifesto and the power of that. Um, and I love the, that the fact that like this, the Mina Loy piece from 1914 is this sort of handwritten, right? We see the underlines and the question marks. Um, and I really appreciated that keeping that handwritten text um, as opposed to sort of typing it out and putting it in, you know, you can really sort of feel that anger and feel sort of the energy of the piece when it's all handwritten. Yeah, I tried to make some some really like um, kind of forceful arguments with the press that we needed to keep the, a lot of the original artwork and the original like typographical errors. And the, so even sometimes like the original mimeographed copies are reprinted in here instead of, you know, just like, you know, standardizing them all. Um, and I and I really like that. I mean, I think it leads to a kind of aesthetic. It's aesthetically interesting in addition to historically interesting because it's sort of a reminder that these were written in different periods of time and that had different aesthetics in terms of, you know, writing, publication, expression, all of that. But it also, you know, it really does give the collection like a feel that there are different voices that are, you know, all sort of coming together in this, like making artistic and aesthetic choices that way. So I, so I like it. And the center also has a nice little booklet of color, you know, reprints of different things like, um, you know, one page manifestos and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after sort of that set, this sort of angry violence section, you move into indigenous and women of color. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that section and the choice um, to have uh, that sort of as a standalone section again, as opposed to sort of mixing some of these with the other areas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was definitely a decision that I had to do some very deep thinking about in terms of what would it mean to have this section as a standalone section, which of course certainly doesn't mean 
This is the only section that includes Indigenous and women of color writers. But again, similar to the angry violence section, I wanted readers to be able to enter this section and really think about what is unique and interesting about manifestos written from a place of not only feminist rage, but also race-based rage, right? So you enter, you really get a feel, I think, for some of like the different stakes here. There's anti and post-colonial work. There's work that's raging against the religious sort of, you know, oppression of indigenous people. Um, There's a wonderful manifesto um, by Simpson in there about, you know, murdered and missing indigenous women. You have um, a real, again, another really old one, but amazingly feels so fresh now um, from a Chinese feminist that's really wonderful, written in 1907. Um, and then you have this like whole body of work again from early 1970s second wave work that's doing some of that, those first moments that I think are so key to look at together of the Kambahi River Collective, you know, talking about, again, like laying the groundwork and the stakes of what it means to sort of think about race and gender in these ways together. And then you have Francis Beale's 1970 Double Jeopardy, which I just think we can't ever read enough because it is just such a well-written, beautiful piece of work. Um, I also included in there a manifesto that's really obscure, very hard to even trace, you know, where it comes from or what its origin story is called The Sisters Reply that's written collectively, which I really love that one as well. And The Black Movement and Women's Liberation by Linda LaRue, who also has fallen into obscurity. So we know very little about her. Um, These pieces, I think, all really work well together to look at as a body of work that's coming out of this like very particular cultural moment. Um, And then, of course, you know, leaping forward to today where we see, you know, in the last 10 years, there's a lot of really fascinating work that's been coming out of, you know, again, Black Lives Matter platform is in there. So trying to create bridges between these sort of generations of women of color feminisms and what they're doing together. But again, I hope that readers will see the sort of collective impact of reading about Black and Brown rage together in this way. And I I really love this section too. I feel like every time I enter it, it's really, you know, it, it really makes a case for why we don't necessarily want to think about feminism in this wave model, because it's really about how like these waves bleed into each other. And you can see really how women have been fighting these same struggles for generations, just in slightly different forms. And I really like that as well about this section. You keep uh, responding to questions I was going to ask, because this was one of those sections where I really appreciated the structure of when you chose um, the pieces. And in any none of these sections are they in order of when they were first written, right? And this just had this nice feel to it to sort of hear this sort of rage and to think about how some of the issues from the 1970s, 60s, and even older um, really informed issues today, but how you place these, we go from the 70s to 1907, right? But then into like 94 and back and forth. So you can see these sort of playing off each other without... um, uh, being fully addressed or, or they don't, they read in a way that you don't, you can't be like, all right, we're done with this time frame. They're done with this time. Um, we're just going to put this away. Right. They really feed yeah. on each other. Yeah, totally. I'm glad you said that. Cause it's absolutely true. I mean, we don't want to think of it as like, there was this one bit of struggle in the early seventies and then that went away. And, you know, and instead you just see that there's this whole long time frame that people have been fighting these same battles And they, you know, that in some ways they've only even intensified more over time rather than lessened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have a section on sex and body that sort of talks not only about women as sort of sexual beings and what that means, but also moves into issues of pro-choice, issues of rape um, and So can you talk a little bit about that section and what you were trying to do with these manifestos here? I mean, I think I'm so partial to this section because, you know, the rest of my sort of identity is often very much attached to doing sex research and thinking about sexuality and women's sexuality and this sort of stuff. So I think this, you know, this is a section that's really trying to encapsulate and embody not only some of the deepest level of contradictions and disagreements within, you know, feminist thought, which again, I mean, I, the book isn't designed to necessarily highlight disagreement as much as to show 
like people are emphatic when it comes to sex and body issues. And you can really see that like these are some of, I think, the most impassioned and infuriated manifestos as a whole. Um, You know, it moves from a woman writing a letter to her rapist. It has, you know, I think some really wonderful pro-choice, but also pro-abortion manifestos, including a very little known manifesto written by Simone de Beauvoir that I, you know, sort of uncovered. I was so excited about this. Um, Thinking about, uh, you know, sex worker rights, thinking about the right to not have children, a manifesto of about um, masturbation. So thinking about, again, sexual practices, and then also thinking about abject bodies. So there's some manifestos about um, menstruation, there's, you know, including a wonderful kind of manifesto-y poem called Axe Tampax, um, alongside thinking about an, an early a 1970s manifesto about fat liberation. So we're thinking, it is really thinking about sex and body and all these sort of politics around those things, but specifically thinking about marginalized bodies of thought and marginalized bodies together, actual bodies to material fleshy bodies together. Um, So I, you know, I think for the most part, I would imagine readers of this book would be, for example, you know, fairly commonly pro-choice, but I think these manifestos about abortion are also trying to push the envelope a little bit more um, to really like, you know, kind of nudge us a little bit further left or a little bit more radical um, and really to sort of think about these, these like underlying kind of root, root issues that connect these things. And I definitely, this one feels really, really lively. There's a, a little short manifesto, kind of a funky one about um, consent. There's, there's all kinds of stuff in this one. I feel like this section is sort of, you could have a field day in it of, you know, kind of the, the battles and contradictions and wildness of, feminist thought about about sex and bodies yeah i just want to learn more about the blood sisters project because i just love the title of that as well yeah it's cool right (laughs) and and i love that this section sort of gets at some of this body positivity work that is so strong right now but showing the deep history in it right um yeah that it didn't just spring up in the last five years right like betty dodson has been out there for decades like telling us to masturbate as a kind of self-care you know it's true and like the fat liberation movement also had it's been around for 50 years you know and this is not a new idea and it's so again i think it helps us to feel less lonely this whole collection really does that like the struggles that we have and the the battles that we feel like we're fighting and you know, the justice work that we're doing, there's a long genealogy of this for many, many decades and generations, even sometimes of people who've been fighting alongside us and with us. So in some ways, this book is like, you know, it's designed to help us feel like we have companions in the struggle. I do feel like that's true. Yes, no, very much. Yes. Sometimes I, I'm like, I am that old. I remember that. But I'm also like, it makes me so happy when I'm like, this was going on in the 60s and 70s, the same issues, right? Sometimes I'm like, I don't want it to be the same issues. But I appreciate that this is not this new that exactly what you're saying. Like, we have um, people come before us who are talking about these things as well. You, yeah. You and I mean, it it is sort of important to remember, too, that you know, it could be seen as depressing to say that we've been fighting these same battles for, you know, generations or 100 years, 150 years, 200 years sometimes. But I actually don't find it to be depressing at all. I think it really does show a kind of solidarity that's not just in our own space and time, but that like stretches far backwards. And in that way, I feel like, you know, it, it offers something to us to feel like we've got we've got new tools for the struggle now, you know? Mm hmm. The next section I love because you taught you have this sort of hacker cyborg and often we don't think of this space as a, you know, Donna Haraway comes up, but often beyond her, we don't think of it as a big of a sort of feminist space. So um, can you talk a little bit about this section, um, why this section and sort of what you have in there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I love thinking about feminist hackers and that they exist out there doing, you know, doing justice, social justice, like, you know, fighting the patriarchy through technology. And really, the the whole section is designed to help us think about technologies of power. And even at the end, sort of thinking about anti-technology as a kind of, you know, resistance fight as well. Um, it ends, the section ends with the radical psychiatry manifesto that's really calling into question 
um, psychopharmacological sort of, you know, interventions and, uh, and being really nervous about that. So I think it's, it's also, you know, thinking about technology in general as tools of resistance, but also as tools of oppression, both. Um, so I kind of like that, you know, and as a tension, but the, the, the vast majority of the manifestos are thinking about, um, you know, using hacking for feminist purposes and, you know, the internet, the tools of the internet and what does it sort of mean? And, you know, Donna Haraway's, you know, very important cyborg manifesto, which it's sort of hard to remember sometimes it was written in 1991 because it feels it, it again has that feel of it feels slightly dated, but it also feels really futuristic even now and sort of imagining the body and um, technology merging and thinking about them to, as operating in tandem that we aren't sort of our quote unquote natural bodies. There is no such thing as a natural body. And these, these works, I think, you know, really try to try to skew our sense of, you know, the individual operating alone and in a natural state and instead try to like, try to imagine what it feels like to kind of think in, in technological terms. And I, I mean, I, I think I really love Mackenzie works um, piece in here, maybe the most, uh, I don't know. I love them all. I really love them all. Um, but I, I think this is kind of an understudied area, um, maybe not in like the the people who are in the actual like subfield and subgenre of thinking about feminist technology studies. But I do think for, you know, just like average feminists walking down the street, like we don't think nearly enough about this stuff. And so I, I'm hoping that this section will be not only provocative, but kind of an inroads for people who don't think a lot about, you know, the Internet or technology or hacking or cyborgs or cyber feminism or any of these themes. Yeah, no, and that was one where I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's something to start to think about, right, for me, um, more so than I already had. You know, we read Donna Haraway, but thinking about it in a larger context was really great. Um, so your last two sections, we'll talk about them separately, but I have to say they're my favorite just because <laughs> they're, my, they're my areas of interest, right? Um, so you've got this... Um, uh, what you call it like thrashy punk section, which I love that you have um, the, the riot girl manifesto printed out um, just in the typed form that it was in the zine um, with, you know, here's my address. If you want to write me, which is very zine esque. Um, and then mm-hmm. right after that, we get Lucy Parsons. <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit about this section and the choices in this section? I know a lot of people say this is their favorite and I, I have to agree. I think it's one of my absolute favorites too, because it's really trying to imagine a space for class-based rage, but also trashiness itself as a sort of celebrated entity. So thinking about that call from Valerie Solandis to write for, you know, what she calls whores, dykes, criminals, and homicidal maniacs. This is a section that I think really is, kind of doing that. So we, you know, it's all about anti-respectability and sort of grungy, scrappy feminism. And I think that's why people respond to it so positively, because it just feels like it creates oxygen when you read it. I, and I agree. I love the Riot Girl Manifesto. It's a super short one and lovely. Lucy Parsons, for anyone who's not familiar, and most people know her, but for those of you who don't, you know, she is just such an interesting historical figure to learn about. But also, this is a beautiful speech. It's written in 1884, and it's called To Tramps, the Unemployed, the Disinherited, and the Miserable. And it feels, again, like it could be spoken and read to us right now and feel like it is exactly what a lot of us are thinking about in terms of disempowerment, class, um, desperation, poverty, all this sort of stuff. Um, Trash Girls, a a manifesto for misfit toys is one of the strangest manifestos I've read. And it's, it it uses like all kinds of crazy, um, purposeful typos, misspellings. It's supposed to sort of not just push back in its subject matter against respectability, but it, but even in the way that it's written, it's supposed to be kind of anti-respectability, anti, you know, correct grammar, punctuation, spelling. It's just exploding off the page. It's, it's really a bizarre manifesto and actually almost works best when you read it out loud to yourself and then it's really intense and really bizarre. Um, there's a couple of older art manifestos in here. I love Valley Export. Again, for, for listeners who have not come across her, she is an absolutely astonishingly brave Austrian 
performance artist from, you know, who operated mostly in the 70s, but is still active. And she, you know, she did these crazy pieces like where she would cut a triangle out of the crotch of her pants and aim a machine gun at people's faces and like ask them to look at her crotch, like dared them to do it while machine guns in their face and like would, you know, film this and take photos of this. It's wild. So she is just such a, a powerhouse, you know, early feminist performance artist. So I, I was really pleased to have that in there as well. Um, you know, and then it skips around a bit thinking about, you know, Pussy Manifesto, which is really a song that's sort of a wild song from a now defunct kind of, you know, punk folk group that doesn't exist now. But um, I think everyone will like that one. And then this sort of weird meditation by Grimes. And then it kind of the section sort of ends by um, thinking about to in tandem, you know, the, the nature of actual trash. So there was a manifesto from a hospital cleaner who's sort of thinking about the politics of cleaning up people's trash and having no one notice and no one care, really, and sort of calling them out. I love that one as well. Um, and then thinking about, you know, relating to the university as a criminal institution and thinking about um, what would be a sort of, you know, I would say quite unpopular and new way of sort of framing the institutional practices of universities in relation to the development of, of thought itself. So I love that too. Um, and then of course I end with this tiny little excerpt from Jessa Crispin's why I am not a feminist, a feminist manifesto where she's directing this little, it's like this little sidebar basically to um, men who like to send her letters, like, you know, giving her advice about how to change the book and what she has to say about that. So again, sort of like this this trashy feminist voice that I love so much. Um, so yeah, I, I think the the whole section is is maybe the most pleasurable of them all. Maybe at least I would say it's close. Yeah. Maybe maybe the last section is the most pleasurable, but I find this one to be pretty deeply pleasurable to read, and it seems like the most fun. It's like a big party in there. <laughs> oh, no, it is. And I mean, my work is on sort of zines. So this section starting with the, the Riot Girl Manifesto makes me happy. Um, but it just sort of screams at you in these great ways. And any speech that ends with like, learn the use of explosives is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I'm like, why can't Lucy Parsons and Emma Goldman? Why couldn't have they just got along? Um, because they're both wonderful in these ways that I'm just like, you can't hate each other. Stop. Um, and I can't solve that problem. But yes, I did love this and love thinking about, especially the pieces about sort of art having to, you know, art should be for everybody and, and, and bringing that in, um, making, yes, it's super fun. Yeah. Um, and your last section is your witchy bitchy section, which I did think was lots of fun. I, especially because I really love witch, the women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell and the fact that it's <laughs> sort of resurfaced, right? It's been around, it was around for a long time and then it came back. Um, but I love that you have their sort of manifesto in the beginning and then move through that. So can you talk about the sort of witchy bitchy section and why you sort of chose to, end with this section. Yeah, I mean, I think these are both words and labels that get lobbed at women, usually in a derogatory way. And there's been a lot of interesting work trying to take these terms back. But also, I think it's really good for us not to distance ourselves from either of these, and even from the legacies of what they mean. You know, I think witchiness and bitchiness, you know, maybe it, it feels a bit 70s feminism at times but I feel like there's like you know there's a reason why witch is back right the, the women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell it's resurfaced in part because there's like this newfound relevance of thinking in these ways and imagining like the sort of menacing power of you know women slash witches kind of lurking in various corners and you know coming together in these various kinds of solidarity I love it I mean it feels this manifesto you know it's really like a kind of, kind of classic. I feel like there were, there could be no collection of feminist manifestos without it. Um, and then there's of course the very, very ill-tempered, uh, you know, Joe Freeman, she calls herself Joreen in this bitch manifesto where she's like, again, trying to reclaim this word and the concept and basically saying that women have every right to sort of be bitchy and embody that and act in bitchy ways. Um, you know, she's been sort she she really hates Valerie Solanas. So my first contact with her, 
she she just basically <laughs> was super mean to me. So it's also weirdly kind of funny, if just personally, for me to have this manifesto in here. Um, because most of my interactions with her have been her like yelling at me about writing about Valerie Solanas and telling me that Valerie Solana should go down like an undigested meal and things like this. So I feel like she also really, you know, she means what she says in here. This is like, but you know, there's like, we have to make space for this. It's lovely. And then, you know, thinking about again, early kind of red stockings manifesto, kind of a, um, the funeral oration for the burial of traditional womanhood in tandem with this, you know, kind of newish manifesto about apocalyptic witchcraft, which again is sort of, you know, I think readers will find it to be sort of fun to read in these ways because these are not these kind of texts that we normally come across now. I mean, the the Kathy Amotnik text has mostly been like buried in the archives and people don't like, you know, take it out and dust it off very often. So I guess it was my effort too to kind of, you know, embrace the the bitchy side by dusting off this, this short manifesto that people have sort of forgotten about. Um, and then I end this section, you know, thinking using two kind of um, poetic, you know, artistic kind of moments. I wanted a slightly like quieter ending, but one that's still kind of, you know, connected to this, you know, the, the kind of like metaphysical kind of feminist vibe sort of thing. And so, um, and I love these, these are kind of like almost like meditations on the future or thinking about what comes next or what we can imagine um, bringing us together somehow in this like witchy bitchy section. So I'm, I'm ending it kind of on a tone that may feel a little surprising for readers, but I, I like it. It's, it's a little bit like um, the way that sometimes when you read quotes that don't necessarily have a lot of specificity, it can be provocative to think in, in like expansive ways. And so I sort of end the whole collection with these, with these two kind of tiny poems. And I think that, you know, that's a, it's a sort of strange ending maybe for 500 pages of screaming and ranting, but I did that on purpose and it feels kind of important too, you know? Oh, is that last one, is it on a gravestone? Like, what? Yeah, yeah. Like, so I wanted to make sure. Is. I was like, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, I know, I know it's, it's weird. The it's, best. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And it doesn't, I mean, I also think there's like an irony to the last one because, of course, it's calling itself a manifesto, but it's like, it's like really kind of like deep and reflective compared to most of them, you know? No, yes, no, I love this section, but I also, um, in a very seriously, I'm very interested and uh, try and push my students to really think about the importance for women with witchcraft and the history of witches and what that me- meant for women's body politics, women's rights, um, what was actually going on when we were sort of um, with this history of shaming witches and witchcraft um, and Mm. things, right? Because they were sort of taken away from the role that male doctors wanted, or, you know, if you went to the medicine woman, or if you went to the witch to get that help. So I appreciated this as like, legitimizing um, in ways those ideas and the importance of that in feminism and in sort of women's history um, that we sometimes don't think of, right? Yeah, I like that you said that because I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we want want to sort of enjoy this work, but also there is a kind of serious history that attaches to it. And I mean, even like when we think about bitchiness as a thing, you know, that, that also attaches to quite serious feelings that people often have about that label being, you know, sort of hurled at them out of anger or in really like unpleasant, like public spaces or whatever. And how, and how that creates this kind of like archive of pain that we have around, you know, both witches and bitches. So I, I do feel like I, I hear you. There's like a serious institute too. It's not, it's not just like frivolity in there too, you know, but they're super fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it is right like they're really fun to read but it also like in that way that you read it and then you start to re- and for me it's like yeah see this is this is really great it and they make them at maybe it's that it makes it accessible for people to enter those spaces to look into those 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 ideas um and those areas a bit more right yeah and i, I mean i feel like maybe also this collection as a whole is really trying to show us that 
you know, in addition to like the deeply serious work that we need and that also permeates this collection, we also need desperately, we need humor, we need fun, we need absurdity, we need outrageousness. I mean, so that's another part of like the the second wave that I feel like has been totally buried that I really would like to kind of like personally kind of uncover more and like, you know, shed some light on and dust it off because that's really so much of the 70s radical feminists direct actions were hilarious and wonderful and absurd. I mean, they would storm into the ladies home journal and like threaten to throw the editor out the window and then stage these wild, you know, protests, you know, which went on, went to wall street and like released a bunch of rats. And there were like some mishaps with that. And they staged these sort of, you know, fake weddings. I mean, there would, people would do all these like really absurd, interesting things. Flo Kennedy was always up to all sorts of mischief. And, you know, she was like the queen of outrageousness and doing all of these kind of interventions in public that, you know, got a lot of attention in part because she was like super loud mouth and super funny and really smart and strategic all. And so I think, you know, a, a return to that would be really good. You know, how could we think in more absurd ways and everything that you know, uses that as a tactic, I'm really drawn towards. And I think it has such value and often value that we kind of underplay in, you know, feminist politics now, right? Like we want to be angry and serious and intense and like have that be a part of our tone, but we also like desperately need to be absurd and funny and outrageous. I mean, you know, like the the old PNs that they used to do where they would you know, have all these groups of women just like pee on the lawn. Like they did this at Harvard when they were protesting the politics of the of not putting women's bathrooms in the Harvard library. So they just got together and they went to the front of Harvard and they peed on the lawn together for a few weeks. And then miraculously, Harvard, you know, changed their policies. So these things, you know, they're fun and they're interesting. And I this section, I think, also really kind of like evokes that. And I I like that, too, to kind of help us return to, you know, not taking ourselves so seriously that we strip away humor and absurdity. Yes. No, I agree. I think especially right now, we need a little bit of fun and to realize that it's okay to have fun. It's okay to do that. And that can still make a difference, right? And make a change. Right, right. Exactly. In these ways. So um, we sort of went through your sections. Is there anything else about um, this collection that you sort of, and you might not have anything, but that you sort of want to highlight or bring to the listener? Well, I mean, I, I'm hoping that it can really serve, you know, a couple of different purposes. One, you know, people I'm sure could pick it up and read it, you know, each section bit by bit, kind of from beginning to end. But I also think it can be one of those books that we can pick up and leaf through and just like pick out a manifesto and read and then close it and then come back to it. So I want it to sort of feel simultaneously like it like it shows bodies of work, but also that it can be like a sort of toolbox or a source of pleasure or, you know, taking a break from things and reading manifestos can be really exciting. They can be very energizing. So I could imagine a lot of different uses for this text. And it's been, you know, the book I would say, you know, I've written eight books in the past and this one I like to have near me, you know, it really is like a book that I have on my desk and I haven't like filed away. I just, I enjoy going to it and just, you know, seeing it, you know, it, it feels like medicine or oxygen or a way to, again, sort of connect with different generations of feminist writers and thinkers. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how other people will experience it, but I definitely I want people to feel like, you know, they can enter this text and use it however they find, you know, valuable. And I, and I think it will be that way. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, this sort of like heavy piece of reading. It can also just be like a resource for like a, a tiny break to look through sometimes, you know? I know exactly. Like I was thinking every once in a while, I'm like, whenever I get to like sit down um, and hang out with my friends again, like this would be one of those things where it's like, all right, you have to read this or we have to sort of read through this. And it's one of those things where we can hang out and sort of talk about it. Um, we could go back and forth and say, hey, did you read this section or did you read this one? Or have you heard this manifesto before? So it really did have that feel where you could keep returning to it 
or you're like, I am pissed off today and I'm going to read this part or, you know, uh, (laughs) inspiration and I'm going to go to this and having them sort of all in one space as opposed to having to um, run around and look for them in a million different places. Yeah. And I hope, I hope readers of, you know, all ages and class backgrounds and generations and genders and everyone will find themselves in it. I mean, I, it's not that all manifestos will necessarily speak to everyone, but I bet everyone can find ones that speak to them, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And that's what's nice about this is that it's such a broad body of work that you can sort of have something for most everyone, right? Yeah. Um, so we've been talking for a while. Though My last question usually I ask folks if they want is if there's something you're working on now, if there's something new that you sort of want to promote i know we're in this really odd weird time where you're probably not um traveling around promoting your you know latest work or anything like that but if there's something you're working on that you sort of want to share or talk about um i mean i think more than i mean i'm working right now actually on a on a book that's on the politics of body hair i've written about this for ages but i would never in book form so i've been working on that as a sort of newish project but it'll be a while till that's out I think rather than talk about that, I would like to say that if if this sort of, you know, genre of thinking about manifestos and feminist anger and um, especially, you know, like kind of early radical feminist history interests you, I would I really hope readers will also check out the biography of Valerie Solanas that I published in 2014. Um, it's called Valerie Solanas, The Defiant Life of the Woman Who Wrote Scum. And then in parentheses and shot Andy Warhol. <laughs> of course, that has to be in there, but in parentheses. Um, and then I also wrote a book in 2018 called Firebrand Feminism, and that is about um, four key figures that are often, I think, far too neglected um, of early radical feminist activism. And those are T. Grace Atkinson, Kathy Sarachild, Dana Dunsmore, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And that's a, a collection of work where I spent about 10 years sort of hanging out with them and interviewing them, and then assembled this book about kind of like the lessons we need to carry forward into the future on all sorts of topics, you know, from, you know, activism to sex, to trans politics, to generativity and everything in between. So if you're interested, I really strongly, you know, recommend checking out the Valerie Solanas book and also Firebrand Feminism. Wonderful. Well, Brianna, it was really great talking to you about this. Um, Again, this is Rebecca Buchanan for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And I've been talking to Brianne Foss, who is the editor of Burn It Down Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. 